Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I serve as the secretary of the DD6. I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Amy Bastian, Chief Science Officer at Kennedy Krieger Institute and Professor of Neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University. So Amy, welcome. And um, tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of what you do on a day-to-day basis. Sure. Thanks, Parm. I'm excited to, to talk to you today. My job is twofold right now. I run a research laboratory that studies how movement control is changed with damage to the brain. Um, My particular interests are in the cerebellum and also in uh, damage to the cerebrum. And I also run research at the Kennedy Krieger Institute, which is an institute focused on disorders of the brain in childhood and young adulthood. Interesting. And how long have you been there? I have been at uh, Kennedy Krieger since 2001, so that's 18 years. Prior Mm -hmm. to that, uh, I was at WashU in St. Louis for 10 years, and I have a feeling I will be here for the rest of my time. (laughs) (laughs) Great. It's just that fun and interesting, It's fabulous. Yeah, it's fabulous. fabulous. Great. Good. And so you have an interest in the cerebellum. Yes. The cerebellum baffles me, so I'm excited to to talk about it. And how did you become interested in the cerebellum? So my interest in the cerebellum is due to several things. Uh, The first is that I trained with a neurophysiologist named Tom Thatch. Uh, He is who I did my PhD work with. He ran a laboratory that studied cerebellar function and dysfunction, both in animals and in people with damage to the cerebellum. And with Tom, I ended up learning so much about both clinical cerebellar dysfunction and cerebellar neurophysiology and function in the animal studies. And it just, it was a beautiful way to learn about the structure and it made me uh, enjoy studying it. So I I stuck with it. Another reason that I was interested in the cerebellum is actually my father is a now retired neuroscientist, and he studied a cerebellar-like structure in weekly electric fish. And so I knew something about the cerebellum from my father, and then I had the opportunity to study the cerebellum with Dr. Tom Thatch. Wow, that's neat that you're sort of able to take something that your father did and expand on it probably and yeah he he gave me the advice when i was looking for a phd lab he studied weekly electric fish which are not your typical animal paradigm you usually think about you know fruit flies or mice and he thought boy amy if you can study humans that would be really cool considering that you're a physical therapist yeah <laughs> i said yeah good good thinking yeah yeah Cool. So one of the things, um, you know, I, 
I said earlier that the cerebellum baffles me. And really, I feel like the more that we learn about the brain, the more we realize like everything's involved in everything. And so, you know, but teasing apart some of these sort of specialized areas and, and what happens in them and some of the previous conversations we've had with other people, we've talked a little bit with other folks about motor learning and more of a sort of general sense of motor learning. But I was hoping we could talk about the cerebellum and its role in motor learning and how to promote motor learning in people with cerebellar dysfunction. Sure. So let me start by telling you just a few things about the cerebellum that I think are helpful. The first thing about the cerebellum, of course, is that it has a very distinct architecture that is cellular makeup compared to the cerebrum. Um, and this architecture is highly reproducible across the cerebellum. In other words, all parts of the cerebellum look the same. Whereas in the cerebral cortex, uh, different areas of cerebral cortex change depending upon the function, right? Mm-hmm. Big, big layer five in motor cortex, because it's an output motor area, um, big layer four in visual cortex, for example. Okay, I tell you this because uh, this suggests that the cerebellar computation, I'm gonna call it a computation, but basically what the cerebellum is doing in the brain is probably the same for all of the areas that it receives input from and talks to. Now, this has been a, a reason people want to study the cerebellum, but it's also made studying the cerebellum tractable in some people's minds, but it still is not understood completely. Now, one of the things that I think is important to know about the cerebellum is that even though it receives input from many, many parts of the cerebrum and from the body, the periphery, sensory inputs, it doesn't directly project out to the spinal cord. The cerebellum, think about it this way, influences movement through its connections to other motor structures. Mm -hmm. And so you should think about the cerebellum as modifying the activities of other motor structures. Mm-hmm. And, and its function, therefore, is not to generate movement per se. It, it's, it's actually making sure that the movement happens in the way that the nervous system expects it to and wants it to. Right. So I think of it sort of like the cerebellum helps to shape the movement. It doesn't necessarily directly create the movement, but it helps to sort of make it look the way we want it to look. Yes, so there are many ideas about what the cerebellum does. Here is how I think about the cerebellum right now, based on what I know, through animal studies, through human studies, through neurophysiology, through clinical work. The cerebellum is important for helping you to make predictions about how your movement is going to unfold. Now, we think this is really important because You cannot use sensory information to guide movements. Sensory information, information reaching you from from vision, from proprioception, from your body, is always, it's time delayed. So everything, think about it this way, everything you see right now, everything you hear right now, everything you feel right now has already happened. It's at least 100 milliseconds out of date. Because of that, You can never use that information to correct your movements. It's always too late. 
And if you do, you get instability, you get oscillations because your corrections are wrong. They are made for a time point earlier in the movement. So you need to be able to make a good prediction about how your movement is going to unfold in different situations. We think the cerebellum houses a type of an internal model of how your body is going to react to the motor commands that are being sent down. And by doing that, it allows you to make nice, smooth, accurate movements, even though all these time delays exist. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, totally. So basically what you're saying is that the cerebellum is predicting what you need to do and making you do it before it really even happens, which is why we can catch a ball. That's exactly right. Anything you can do that's predictive is, we think, at least partially dependent on cerebellar function. And this develops during childhood. And there are really clear examples when you don't predict. Um, So think of your toddler who's just learning to walk. And one thing you have to be able to predict is how movements of one part of your body are going to affect the rest of your body. So think of a toddler excitedly standing and then, and then raising their arms up. What happens to them? They fall backwards. Right. And the reason they fall backwards is because they are not making a good prediction of how the arms waving in the air are going are gonna to affect their balance. And cerebellar patients do the same thing. Right. So, so we think that the cerebellum is learning, and this is the learning part, to predict the effects of your own body's motion on other parts of the body, learning to predict how external objects may affect your body motion, and it's constantly learning. It's always sitting there doing this job. And I like to think of it as sort of a calibration. So as you're exposed to new situations, as you grow, as, as you gain or lose weight, as you um, move in new predictable environments, in the snow, in a slippery surface, underwater, whatever, the cerebellum is sitting there saying, okay, now I have to make a new prediction and I'm gonna be adjusting movement by movement, this prediction and refining it. And so that's why learning, cerebellum dependent learning, first of all, requires a predictable signal, error signal to drive it. So think about making a movement for the first time uh, in a new situation. We could just pretend and say it's underwater reaching. (laughs) Well, water behaves in a predictable way. And when you make a reaching movement in water, it's viscous. Faster you go, the harder it pushes back. Uh, The cerebellum helps you to learn to predict that and incorporate that into into the commands that are being sent down for movement mm-hmm. controls. And it takes a few reaches to get there. Right. In our studies, we give predictable perturbations to study cerebellar learning and look to see, look at the time course of reducing error, which is we think making better predictions about the environment you're in. And the cerebellum operates on a time scale of minutes to hours. Cerebellar tuning, we think, is in sort of that time range. Meaning that you're not going to learn it in a few seconds, but you maybe don't need days and days to learn it either. So if the cerebellum is functioning normally, we think that at least the studies have shown that it does its job of recalibrating your predictions 
by forming this internal model. And it does so depending on the task, it does so on the time scale of, you know, 10 minutes to a couple hours. Mm-hmm. And it does it based on evaluating errors. That's correct. It's based on errors. And the errors are an interesting thing. And I'm, I think I can relate this to a taxi in a minute and why a taxi is so challenging to treat. Yeah. So, so, but let's, let's talk about errors first. This is an example I give to people because I think that it illustrates it well, even though it may seem a little bit artificial. But when you move a computer mouse on your computer, you have learned the calibration of that mouse. Right. In other words, you know, if I move the mouse this far, I'm going to see the cursor on the screen move this far. Right. So there's a mapping. I call that a mapping. When you go to your friend's computer and do the same thing, what often happens? You move the mouse and it doesn't go nearly as far or it goes too far. Right. And it takes you trial by trial to recalibrate how you move in that new situation. And it's a little bit annoying at first. But then the interesting thing is when you go back to your computer, often you have to actively sort of unlearn that Mm -hmm. calibration and relearn your own. Think about somebody with cerebellar dysfunction, perhaps being more like the situation where the cursor moves faster than you expected it to. And it gets really unstable and oscillates. You have to keep correcting, correcting, correcting to get it onto the the icon that you're interested in. Does that help or no? Yeah. So when you have a person with cerebellar dysfunction and they're having a hard time evaluating those errors and therefore learning from it, what can you do? Right. So I think we have to be really clear about where it's breaking. So when people have damage to the cerebellum, they can see they're making errors. They know they're making errors. Mm -hmm. It's just that the cerebellum is no longer able to update its I'll call it computation, but basically the cerebellum is no longer able to use that information in order to change its output to better predict what's going to happen. So you know that you're making an error because you can sure. see, you can yeah, see yeah, error, yeah. but the cerebellum isn't updating its prediction rule. Exactly. So the cerebellum is not updating its prediction rule. And the way that this is ultimately done is it's not changing synaptic strengths of the circuit that's involved in making this movement. And and so imagine that right now, anytime you move in a new situation, it's always tuning. It's always trying to make these predictions. You make an error, the next few trials of what you're doing, it's, it's in there. It's normally helping you to correct those errors and make the right movements. Imagine if that was broken, then you would make errors you would not have this sort of automatic process operating in the background, fixing them. And so you'd have to think about every movement that you're making. You'd have to think about how you'd have to try to shift your control mechanism to something not well suited for this, this job, which is shifting it to actively thinking and voluntarily trying to modify your movements in order to make them well-targeted and smooth and um, effective. So it becomes more of a cognitive No task. question. Yeah. When no question. 
Okay. So when the cerebellum isn't able to predict what are, what are other things though, that we can do to help people? So like, are there environmental constraints that we might think about using that can help people? Absolutely. So from interacting with people with ataxia and from the, the, the work that we've done, we know that first of all, reducing the complexity of the movement helps them. So if you have difficulty predicting how moving your arm is going to affect your balance, that's a high multi-degree of freedom problem. Mm-hmm. And constraining some of those degrees of freedom as simply as, you know, putting your hand on a table, which, you know, is intuitive as you're raising your arm helps. Sometimes though with patients, they haven't quite worked out that anytime they move one part of their body, it affects the rest of their body. And so this is a compensatory thing that we can tell them, reducing the complexity, you know, how many joints you're moving simultaneously can make their movements better. It's not fixing the cerebellar dysfunction, it's working within that constraint. Mm -hmm. So people do things like, you know, we make sure that they really stabilize everything while they're trying to write or tucking their their elbows and their upper arms against their body when they're doing things with their hands so they're only moving at the elbow, you know, brushing their teeth or or drinking from a cup. Those kinds of reductions in degrees of freedom help. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that helps them is actually slowing down. Right. So slower movements have two advantages. One is that the dynamics are different. So if you move your arm really, really fast, it has a bigger force on the rest of your body. It affects it much more just because force is acceleration dependent. Mm -hmm. So if you slow down, that perturbation is lower. The other thing is if you move your arm more slowly, the time delayed feedback has less of a negative effect. And that's because you've gotten farther in that 100 milliseconds of delay for a fast movement, and you will not have moved as far for a slow movement, which means you're you're closer to where your sensory system is telling you you are. Got it. Okay. So those are two compensatory things, but you're interested in learning, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly where I was going. Is, but can we, can people with cerebellar dysfunction learn, motor learn? So motor learning is not one thing. Let's let's start with that, which I think everybody would agree with. Um, mm-hmm. Motor learning represents a suite of neural mechanisms that we use in concert all the time. So it involves lots of circuits in the brain, and the cerebellum is doing one particular thing, we think, or at least contributing to it, which is making this prediction and helping you to predict the effects of, of environments or your body movements. And so the question, the first question is, can another part of the brain actually do this? And I think personally, there's no other part of the brain that has the same circuitry as the cerebellum. So it would be kind of silly to think that it could. So if the cerebellum's truly broken, then it's tough. However, we think that if other parts of the brain are intact, so circuits that involve the basal ganglia, the motor cortex, even prefrontal areas, we think people can learn using some different mechanisms, but the learning is going to affect their movement in different ways. Well, let me just ask the question. Sure. Is it 
possible to have some kind of neuroplasticity or enhancing of the cerebellum. So generally people, it's not like their whole cerebellum is offline, right? Particularly early on. So in a degenerative process early on, or somebody, you know, with an injury, it's just a static loss of something um, that they often will recover from. So I'm thinking of like a stroke or brain injury where a portion of the cerebellum is affected does the rest of it sort of go into high gear like we see in other parts of the brain? Yeah. So this is a a great question. So I'll tell you a few things that we know. The first thing that we know is that if you have a stroke or a uh, one-time insult to the cerebellum, damage to the cerebellum, if the deep cerebellar nuclei are involved in that damage, which are the output of the cerebellum, your prognosis is worse. Because even if the cerebellar hemisphere and the cortex, you know, even if if the cortical areas are still able to do what they should be doing, there's no output. There's no way to relay that information. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So studies have shown that people do worse when the deep cerebellar nuclei are involved. Um, There are specific strokes that tend to involve the deep nuclei more than others. Mm -hmm. Um, Strokes involving the superior cerebellar artery. Mm-hmm. can involve the deep nuclei. Those folks may do worse than people who have a posterior inferior cerebellar stroke, which mm-hmm. tends to get, like you said, cortex, but there's a lot of cortex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so so we do think that there is some redundancy in representation in cerebellar cortex so that there's there's some capability of reorganization. Although nobody's really clearly studied that in animals in a way that's in my mind, very uh, mechanistic or, or explanatory at this point. Mm-hmm. But the phenomena is there, definitely. So you tend to recover better if, you have, if you've had a stroke or, or a lesion, one-time lesion, if the deep nuclei are not involved. Mm-hmm. An interesting little side note is we think of children as being, I'll say, more plastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that's the right word, but that children may recover better from damage to the nervous system. An interesting thing is there was a study done by a colleague of mine, Dagmar Timmum in Germany. She studied lots and lots of people of lots of ages. And the bottom line is the first thing that predicts how well you recover from a cerebellar stroke or focal injury is whether the nuclei are involved, not your age. Mm -hmm. And so this is important to, to know. Um, and I think this is a piece of clinical information that people, you know, would be able to get their hands on. You right. Know, what's the lesion like? It actually matters here. You also mentioned degenerative diseases. Right. And this is, this is what I often, I, I study the most. I study spinocerebellar ataxias, which are autosomal dominant genetic diseases. And these diseases tend to cause a slow progressive loss of neurons in the cerebellum and sometimes other places in the brain. Mm -hmm. And we do see that it's hard to map like how much loss there is and how much compensation there's been. But we do believe that with a slower degenerative process that there is some quote, taking up the slack of the rest of the nervous system. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) it's interesting. I was recently at a meeting where some people were arguing, it was all on the cerebellum. Some people were arguing that they felt in animal models that sort of broken cerebellar output, like you would see in these degenerative diseases, is sometimes worse than no cerebellar output. 
because mm -hmm. you're sending the wrong signals instead of sending, you're better off with none. I am not sure that that translates to humans, but it's an interesting side note. Mm -hmm. So can we in some way facilitate like the rest of the cerebellum working harder in situations where there's a degenerative process going on? The short answer is we don't know. Um, there are some studies that have just been published. They're um, showing that transcranial direct current stimulation of the cerebellum um, may help facilitate residual cerebellar function. Um, one group in particular has been publishing this, and, and I think it's yet to be seen whether it, it replicates. Replication is a really important thing right now, and I don't know the answer to that yet. Okay, but very interesting. Very interesting. So to bring it sort of back to clinical things, yes. when, when we're seeing people in a clinical environment that have cerebellar dysfunction, what are the things that we can do to promote motor learning in those folks? Right. So one was to, to sort of help control degrees of freedom. Right. I would say that's a compensation. Right. And I guess it's, of course, everything is ultimately learning in some way, in some sense. But so clinically, here are the things that I think about. Of course, uh, utilizing the compensations that we've already talked about, keeping people safe. In terms of prescribing a rehabilitation kind of regime, one thing that we've learned in people with degenerative diseases of the cerebellum is that the dose of the treatment is, of course, important, but perhaps what's even more important is the level at which they're challenging themselves. Mm -hmm. So we think about, I guess. Now, this is hand wavy because we don't, I don't know the science behind this, but it may be that when you have partial function of the cerebellum, that you need to push it harder to make it participate in the activities that you want it to. Mm -hmm. And so what we found uh, in a study, it's, it's uh, been published many years ago now, but is that what predicted who benefited from a six-week home exercise program was the level of, of challenge that they reported. And that was specifically for balance. That was for balance. But the interesting thing is it was a balanced training regime, but um, it translated to walking nicely. To walking speed? Yes. Right. And why do you think that is? Well, I think that one of the main reasons cerebellar patients walk slow is not because they cannot walk fast. It's because when they walk fast, they become unstable and they fall. Right. And so if they are better able to, again, make predictions about where my trunk is going to be relative to my foot. So I don't, so I don't fall, then they should be able to walk better. But again, and, and other people have since then have shown in, there's not a ton of clinical trials, but there are a number and people have shown that it, it requires kind of an, an intense therapeutic intervention to move the needle at all. Right. And so people have to really be challenged. Now, the other thing we know, and this is important for the degenerative cases, is that if there is sensory loss as well, so you don't have sensory loss with cerebellar damage per se, but some conditions 
have sensory loss as well as cerebellar dysfunction. Those people do not respond as well. And so, you know, that begs the question of how other systems are, are helping with this rehabilitation process. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking about balance and being mm-hmm. challenging, I think one of the things that's difficult for clinicians often is how do we challenge somebody's balance and give them a dose that is needed to actually improve their balance, which means it's something they're going to have to be doing themselves at home and keep it safe. Yeah. Right. So it gets a little bit tricky. It's really about your patient needs to have the insight to know, to, to sort of learn, you know, what, what is really challenging and how do I do that? And that seems like something that we need to help people figure out in in the clinic. Is there anything specific? Like we have talked in the podcast before about an RPE scale, like how did you in that study or since, how do you sort of evaluate the challenge that somebody is experiencing with their balance? Well, we gave them a scale where they would rate each exercise in terms of how challenging it was for them. Mm-hmm. What we learned also is that if we asked, if we use something like an activity balance confidence scale, the ABC scale, they actually, before they start the exercise intervention, they rate themselves as feeling pretty confident. And as soon as they start doing the exercise intervention mm-hmm. halfway through, their confidence has dropped dramatically. Mm-hmm. And it's because they never challenge themselves. Right. So we're forcing them to challenge themselves. And so my point is that self-report is not always, without giving them very clear guidance, it's not always the best way to go. Because mm-hmm. I think that they have not always realized that they're not challenging themselves. Right. I mean, I think that's one of one of the fun things about working with people with balance issues is like sometimes they don't, they, they think they're okay. Like they haven't had any falls. They're not that unsteady, but then you ask them to do something and they, and they can't do like stand in tandem and they can't yeah. do it at all. They, they didn't know like, it. Yeah. They didn't know. And so we, you know, once they figure that out, they're like, holy cow, maybe my balance really isn't that good. And for whatever reason, over time, they're like, have made these compensations of like wide base of support and like all of these things that have happened that they don't even realize that their brain is doing. Yeah, I think you're right on the money there. That's exactly right. And so then you're, you're to follow up on your question, your original question, how do you keep somebody safe while you're challenging their balance and, and having them do that themselves is I think a tricky business. I think that whenever I assess a patient for considering how I would intervene I first make sure that they're strong enough. I mean, this is not a cerebellar function. This is a general thing. They've got to be strong and they've got to have decent endurance so that they're able. So we put them in the best position possible to be able then to challenge themselves. And, you know, I don't want them to fail challenging themselves just because they're operating at their age predicted max heart rate. You know, I don't want them just so exhausted that they can't even try. So so I think those, those sort of building blocks are important. And then when you start to challenge them, I think that you need to make sure that the patient has some, or the participant has some insight. I think you need to um, make sure that they have a caregiver or somebody who can be with them when they exercise mm-hmm. and ensure their safety. Even in sitting, we use things like sitting on tip boards, on different surfaces. Those are hard. Mm -hmm. And those things seem to be 
even in people who have reasonable standing balance, it challenges them. So I, I would say putting people in situations where they can, they can lose their balance, but recover by either having a person with them or, 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 you know, having a surface that they can, you know, put their hand down on. But, you know, luckily, physical therapists are really creative. So they usually figure out ways to get around these things. But the main thing is to know what the person can do. Right. How to push them safely. And so you mentioned a few times the sensory system. Yes. And um, you have a paper that talks about the cerebellum's role in proprioception. Yes. Which, you know, proprioception, I think, is, is a really hard thing to figure out. I mean, you know, we, we try to sort of evaluate people's proprioception with, like, the ankle dangling off a table and you're moving it up and down. And, like, then they go and stand on their legs and it's a completely different situation. You got it. Let me tell you about this because okay. I think it's, it's good. It's important. So. The way we test proprioception is typically in a passive condition. We move around a joint and we say, did it go up or down, right? Something like that. Can you feel the movement? Did you not feel the movement? And so forth. It turns out that um, anybody's proprioception, their ability to detect a change in, in a joint configuration, it's basically the length of a muscle, anybody's proprioception is better if, if it's during an active movement versus during a passive movement. And this is easily tested in an experimental setting. And actually, you could do this yourself. You can rest your arm in a position um, and have somebody move it and then try to estimate where it is with your other hand. That's a sort of a passive proprioceptive test. Actively, you get better. You get more precise. So if you move your arm to one position and then you point at it with the other arm, you're going to be better trial by trial than you would if somebody passively moved your arm and then you had to point at it. Does this make sense? That makes sense, yeah. Okay, so here's the deal with cerebellar patients. Their passive proprioception, the thing we test in the clinic, move your joint up or down, is in our hands and others identical to healthy people without neurological damage. Mm -hmm. What's different is when they actively move, they do not benefit from that. Their movement is not helping them in any way know where their body is in space. And we think, again, it all fits into this idea that you're forming a prediction of where your movement's going to go. And there are nice computational studies that show that if you're predicting where your movement's going to go, you can take that prediction and use it along with your sensory feedback to make an even better estimate of where your body is. And so think of it this way. You're not just relying on your sensory system when you're moving. You're also evaluating your motor commands and saying, oh, I'm probably moving this far. And so cerebellar patients are not doing that appropriately, all in this context of an internal model making predictions for them. Wait, let me just ask you a question. So this idea of this, like the feed forward aspect of the cerebellum, is that feed forward aspect of the cerebellum actually helping your sensory system to know where you are? Yes. Okay. Yes. So yes. This sort of prediction thing is happening not just in the output, but also in the input. 
from our sensory system. So think about it this way. When you send a command to make a movement, if the cerebellum is, is operating well, it's going to kind of predict where that movement's going to end up. Right. And then you also have, once you're there, uh, proprioceptors telling you where your movement ended up. Your nervous system, and not in the cerebellum, in another part of your nervous system, you can combine those two pieces of information and have a better estimate of where your movement ended up. Mm-hmm. And so... The, so it's enhancing. It's enhancing. Right. So this is, this is the bottom line. In a passive situation, cerebellar patients, if it's a pure cerebellar lesion, will not have proprioceptive deficits. As soon as they actively move, they will not be worse. They just won't get better, whereas healthy people do get better at their mm-hmm. proprioceptive abilities during active movement. Yeah, it's, it's not straightforward, but it's sensible. Right. And I think what it does for us is it helps us a little bit, at least prognostically, to understand where our patients are at and also from what we're seeing. So, you know, if you're used to seeing somebody who does better in a active situation and now you have a patient with cerebellar dysfunction and you're not seeing the same thing, maybe now we have a little bit of insight as to why. Right. Um, And, you know, obviously we're going to continue to work with that person, but then what does that tell us about what we think prognostically about them really improving? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. And we're working on this right now in the lab. We're working on better quantitative measurements of your perception of where you are, where your body parts are during movement mm-hmm. rather than just, you know, in, in static or passive situations. Right. But yeah, I think, I think it, I think that's right. It's totally incredible to think about what our brains are doing. I mean, it's, baffling and it's amazing. Yeah. It's a fun time to be in neuroscience. And I think I personally, I feel like we're making progress with people with cerebellar ataxia. And there are some interesting things that will be coming down the pipeline soon. So I, uh, it would take another hour to explain all of them, Yeah, but it's a really interesting problem. And I think these patients are often very insightful and um, understand things about their motor control problems. I would, I would advise all therapists to listen carefully to what they tell you because it, it does actually get at the mechanism base uh, behind the problem. You know, if a patient says, don't talk to me while I'm walking, it's because, <laughs> because they need to focus all their attention on their walking. Right. And, and you'll see that, of course, lots of patients, but cerebellar patients particularly. Yeah. So is there anything, what's coming down the pike for you guys? Is there anything that you're really excited about? We have two projects right now that I'm really excited about. One project is uh, focusing on using a different a form of learning driven by different signals, not air-based learning uh, that we think depends on the cerebellum. Uh, instead, it's reinforcement learning, and we're showing. We've published one paper, and we have another one that will be coming out showing that we can sh- we can actually make cerebellar patients learn some simple things that uh, we can't through air-based learning. And so, what is? Give me an example of reinforcement learning. So this is this is why it would take another hour, I think, but I will give you an example. Um, reinforcement learning does not rely on error at all. 
in other words, reinforcement learning is much more about the process of exploring movement by movement until you um, happen upon this, uh, a movement that gives you a reward. And by reward, I mean, gets you where you want to go. So we take away error information from our cerebellar uh, participants. We don't let them see their errors. We can't take away what they feel, obviously. Uh, But instead, as they're learning a new calibration, we just say yes, no, if they're getting closer to it and let them explore. And we can actually change not only you know, simple things like a directional perturbation, but we can also change how curved their path is for their reaching movement. And so we're basically exploring whether we can exploit an intact learning system to benefit them. So I'm, I'm quite excited about that. It's not ready for prime time yet, but I think it, I, we have some new tricks that we're, we're trying and we use virtual reality for this. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Cool. So speaking of prime time, Amy, you're famous in my household because, <laughs> because you were on the show Brain Games, yeah. which for a while my daughter was into. And at one point, my husband and daughter were watching it. And I walked through the living room and there's Amy Bastion, larger than life. And I was like, wow. That was a hilarious, I mean, very cool, of course, but it was a hilarious experience. My husband makes fun of me all the time about this because they made me say those lines over and over and over yeah. again. And they kept saying, say it like you're at a party. Say it like you're, you're really excited to be there. And so if I'm practicing a talk for my husband or something, he's also a neuroscientist. I'll say something. I'll say, what do you think of this? And he'll say, say it like you're at a party (laughs) because that's what they told me to do. So it's, it's kind of amusing, but funny. Yeah. Yeah. So we always try to learn a little bit about the uh, actual person behind the magic here. So real quick in a minute or two, what do you like to do when you're not working on the weekends? And Oh, so a few things about me. Well, I have a 14-year-old son, Malcolm, and I like hanging out with Malcolm, obviously. Um, so, but Malcolm and my husband, Ed, and I, we really, we have sort of a reading club we do together where we read things and we discuss them, usually out over a dinner out. Oh, fun. Yeah, it's, it's really uber nerdy, but it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> and I like to run. I love listening to podcasts. So I know they're so fun. It's, it's like you can run and listen to a podcast and yeah, that's, that's terrific. But you know, I think like a lot of scientists sort of your hobbies are often your science, which uh, yeah. is nice, but I, I always feel like it makes me sound boring. <laughs> yeah. I know. I hear you. I know my family's like, you're doing another PT thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it is fun. It's fun. I get a big kick out of what I do. It is just, it's like a, the most interesting puzzle possible. So yeah, great. All right. Well, Amy would like to thank you for joining us today. Well, it's been you. really great. We had a lot of great insights and, you know, I think our listeners will learn a lot. We, we're hoping that at some point we can ask you to come back and update us and and help us learn even more about the cerebellum because, you know, I think we could talk about it probably for a long, long time. 
Well, thank you for inviting me and having me. This was great fun for me. And I would love to come back another time and update you. Great. All right. Thank you. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. Thank you to our volunteers, Mark Delellis, Nicole Seward, Rebecca Summers, and Liz Yates Horton. This episode was edited by Sarah Crandall. Special thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. We also, full disclosure, have bloopers often at the end. Bloopers are great. There is construction going on here. There's a jackhammer in the background. (laughs) You can't hear it too much. I'm happy to call you Dr. Bastion. Yeah, I never, I, nobody calls me that. So I don't like that. They were so impressed that I was interviewing somebody who'd been on brain games. I wanted to not geek out too much. Yeah, I don't know why I don't see everybody. This is what happened this one time. Oh, now I can see everybody. Please cut that out.